AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for March 3rd, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. We're joined today by John Hogeboom. Welcome, John. What have Thank you been you. up to lately? I've been up to staring out the window over here at more snow coming down, and I'm getting very dismayed. <laughs> not, not only dismayed, but we're going to have to talk really fast today so that we can get on the road right. and get yeah, home I think before we got it gets some time, deep. but it snows like every other day lately. I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of this winter. Well, let's get our minds into the security topic, and we'll be able to right. reinvigorate here. And Matt Kaiser, welcome, Matt. How's it going? Uh, yeah, I've been trying to decide whether I want to put out the fires or use it to melt the snow. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, welcome. We'll get right into it here. And first, we're going to go over to you, Matt. And uh, I guess, you know, occasionally things get found in the wrong place. So can you explain a little bit? <laughs> sure. So this is an article from Ars Technica. Uber left something on their GitHub gists, which is small snippets of, of code or text. Mm -hmm. um, they haven't been very you know, forthcoming with what exactly they were, but what it sounds like is these were some sort of security keys, maybe API keys or database passwords, mm -hmm. that allowed an attacker back in May of 2014 to extract information from a protected database containing drivers' names and drivers' license numbers. Mm -hmm. Now, this is you know, one of the older stories in the book at this point. You leave something out on the internet, someone's going to find it and find a way to abuse it. I think uh, a couple months back, we actually had an article on the show where someone accidentally left their AWS key mm -hmm. in GitHub, and some bot came by, scraped it, and spun up a whole bunch of instances to mine Bitcoin or something like that. Wow. I mean, this, this happens to, it sounds like it happens to everybody at this point. Mm -hmm. GitHub has gone and filed a John Doe lawsuit to try to unmask who was behind this, and has actually tried to subpoena GitHub to get the IP addresses that might have actually accessed this information. So Uber, I'm sorry, Uber is doing the investigation into this to try to figure out who, who got access to it, and, that it's, and they've subpoenaed GitHub, is that right? Yes. Yeah, it, I think I heard it maybe a little bit differently, so just wanted to sorry. make sure we got it clear. That's no problem. I've called you Stan before, so it's, <laughs> this can't be too bad. <laughs> yeah. But that's the, that's the long and short of it, I mean. Like, right. like, like I said, one of the older stories in the book at this point, but something to be aware of if you're a developer. Make sure this is not left. You don't want to yeah. leave your, your keys out under the mat when everyone's checking underneath the mat. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, uh, no pun intended, I presume. Uh, no, I'm sorry. So in any case, the, you know, this is interesting to me, not just in, in the, you know, the mistake that was made in, in access to it, but the... Uh, I haven't heard too often in the past discussion about driver's license information being sensitive per personal information, but it seems like that would be information that could be used or abused in, in some manner. Did, do you have any theories on this? I haven't, like I said, I haven't heard of too many cases of that in the past. Uh, I don't know about any cases, but I think if you were in the business of forging driver's licenses, a valid number and name would get you pretty far. It would be a yeah, lot I'm not handier. quite sure how much of that information, if it's got everything from your driver's license, it's got your your home address, potentially. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, certainly you have other personal information that uh, you might consider sensitive. Right, right. Uh, birth date and 
mm -hmm. information like Which that. Which you might it, be able to use to leverage for other purposes if right. you get enough pieces of those information. That's true. If someone's using driver's license numbers as a validation for some other system. Mm -hmm. Good point. So obviously something that we want to be paying attention to going forward. Hopefully they'll get this mess a little straightened out. <laughs> yeah, be careful where you, keep, where you keep your source code, right? I'm always kind of surprised people keep their source code up on public places and whatnot and things like that. Like I would... Well, if it's an open source project, I think yeah, the, the, I the significance here is distinguishing and separating what is, you know, really the sensitive information, the keys, from the actual source code itself. That's what I perceive to be the mistake here. Right. Is that uh, that separation wasn't made. There, in fact, in, in, in a particular installation, any configuration information I would consider to be separate. But you do want, you, do you want configuration management around that as well. So I guess it's the, that's, that becomes the trick. Now, GitHub provides private spaces, right? Isn't that the, that's true, the yes. case? And so this was a case where it was, got put into a public space by accident. Did, that's my understanding, correctly? Yeah. And so that's, I guess, an aspect of this that needs to be, it's not so much that it's being stored in the cloud, it's the fact that perhaps the roles or the permissions weren't managed right, correctly. Yeah, right carefully placed there with the proper permissions. All right. right. Uber helps with mobility. I think uh, <laughs> that's well, a different kind of mobility, the next story. Yeah, so I guess this is sort of a mobility in the malware sense. Yes, so well, we've talked about mobile malware over you know the past few years here. It's becoming yep. more prevalent. And there's a particular family of malware that's kind of been going around the past couple of weeks here, I guess been dubbed the Gazon malware. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's short enough that I'm probably close. And basically what this is, is um, it's a piece of malware. It'd be interesting to try to track back patient zero for this, because that might be helpful. But, mm -hmm. uh, but basically what it is, is um, it gets on your Android device. Um, and then once it's on there, usually it'll come into you from another text message. So you'll see a text message from probably one of the, con someone you know, mm -hmm. that's in your contacts or knows you. It's a text message that says, hey, you want to win a free Amazon gift card? Go here. If you go there, it will attempt to install, you know, kind of sideload this own, its Trojanized Android app. Mm -hmm. And that Android app actually will look on your contact list, get all your contacts, and start spamming all of your contacts with SMS, the same thing. So in that effect, it's how it keeps propagating itself. Mm -hmm. But it'll also do it through email as well. Facebook too, so it'll post to Facebook, but I'm not quite sure if that's built into the malware or not. It wasn't really clear to me, but for the most part, they said 99% of the propagation vector is via SMS spamming. It's probably a little more automated. And so yeah. uh, it, what they're really trying to do is entice you to click on a link that points to a website that where the malware is uh, located and they're pulling that down. Right, right, and that kind of coerce you into sideloading it to, because you're gonna win a free Amazon gift card here. Mm -hmm. But once that malware is on your phone, what it does is it starts to engage in click fraud. So that's really the monetization mm -hmm. of their plan here. In the process of you doing things, or it might just start going off clicking on things, it will, um, you know, they, they do some click fraud activity there to mm -hmm. make you click on things as a human would so that they can get uh, right. click revenue for that. This method of uh, inherent trust that people kind of have between when they get an SMS message from someone they know they tend to trust that a little bit more than some just random mm -hmm. SMS text message they get. 
Uh, so it's been more successful. I think it's in the thousands. I don't think we're seeing billions of infections with this yet. But still, uh, relative to uh, some of these other you know, mobile malware families we've seen out there, this has been pretty successful and quickly successful. It's only mm -hmm. been like a week and week or two that right. it ramped up to that scale. So. so I guess the rule of thumb here is that uh, be wary of links even if they do come from a friend because there right. are cases like this where it takes. Now, do you, do you happen to know if the malware actually requests permission to get to your contacts or if it's actually doing some sort of uh, question. bypassing the uh, I would think that it would. But I don't know. I don't know yeah. if they mentioned that in the article, and we haven't done any analysis of it ourselves. Yeah. But. Well, we have, and, and, and the indications are that it's not that widespread, which suggests to me that there are some boundaries that are hindering its propagation. Yeah, usually when an, an app wants to access, you know, other things like your camera or contacts or things mm -hmm. that it normally shouldn't, it's got to, you know, get yeah, your permission get up on the screen. Permission. So, so it, I would think so it long probably it's not does. The device, yeah. But maybe maybe they're tricking you, and I haven't looked into how exactly what okay. it's doing, but maybe they're tricking you to say, hey, you know, you just want a free gift card, we're going to send it to you, would you like to let some friends know about it, and then they try to get access to your contacts, you're mm -hmm. like, oh yes, I definitely would, I don't know, I'm not quite sure if that's okay. the method they're using there. Well, but. so the second rule of thumb here would be to try to pay, you know, pay attention to <laughs> what applications you're providing access to, you know, yes. and the permissions that are being granted. we've talked about this before, and uh, certainly I guess if you see suspect messages coming from friends, you might report back to your friends because they're probably spraying that around to others that don't need it or want it as well, right? right. Well, I think what something that's important is if you're going to contact the friends, try and find a different method to contact them other than the one that they just sent something to you from. If somebody's email account is, is compromised, for example, responding yeah. to email, we've heard stories of people, you know, the account is compromised and the hacker sits there and goes, no, no, it's fine. Yeah, it's a, Hit center it's and send good. that They're as them again. Good. <laughs> so, you know, if you know them personally, yeah. give them a phone call, you know, yeah. try and find some out of, out of band. Another path, yeah. It's a good point. And I, I don't think that's a situation in this case because it's not actually the device or the user that's been compromised. but. As in your example, it's absolutely right, where a hacker may have gotten access to your email account, you ask them a question, and they answer on behalf of the victim, in a sense. And, uh, but giving them a call would be, obviously, if you're getting a, an SMS message, you probably have their phone number. Yeah, <laughs> you probably do. Yeah, you would. You I, I even go so far as to say call them on a different line if you can. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's a good possibility. That's uh, certainly good advice. All right, very good, John. And uh, so let's go back to you, Matt. And I think the, um, obviously we need to be careful about getting fooled or by you know, a suspect link. Uh, there are other ways that we have to be careful about getting fooled. And, and this one baffled me when we were first talking about it. So uh, I think why don't this, you get <laughs> this one's pretty interesting. Yeah, this is a um, story about, that Lenny Zeltzer put up on his blog. Uh, I'd read his blog pretty religiously, really good stuff. Um, this is a variation on the old tech support scam where someone calls you up and says, you've got a virus, I need to mm -hmm. you know, remotely access your computer and fix it. Now, you know, cold calling is, is not a great way to get people to do what you want them to do, mm -hmm. but... Well, people are advised, and hopefully people realize that when you get somebody just calling you out of the blue, it's probably not somebody you really should trust. You need some sort of way to validate. Exactly. And, and well, a lot so of they, times they purport that they're some well-known yeah, yeah, operating they, system vendor. Yeah, yes. they absolutely <laughs> do that. But, names, yeah. yeah, but by the same token, generally what they say is that if you if you initiate a discussion, that's one thing, but if right. they call you, not trust them. Right. And that's where this gets, that's, gets, gets clever. So 
um, someone's written a Twitter bot. And what it'll do is it'll search Twitter for terms like malware, virus, and automatically respond and say, you know, assuming that the person is complaining about having some sort of infection in their machine, saying, oh, wow, you know, I, I just had that same exact problem. I know some guys mm -hmm. who, who fixed it really quickly, and all you got to do is call this number. And that number actually is an uh, interactive voice system, mm -hmm. and it, it asks you several questions. It asks you, uh, are you over 21? Uh, is this a Windows machine, and is this a business or personal machine? Mm -hmm. Now, no matter which of these you pick, it doesn't actually give you any support. It says thank you and goodbye. Uh, for the one, but to get to the end of it, you basically have to be using a personal machine, be over 21, and have it be a Windows machine. Mm. Uh, and then they say thank you, and they hang up. Everything mm -hmm. else says, I'm sorry, we can't support that. The idea, uh, we're, we believe, is that eventually the people who have made it through that those hoops will get called back. And right. because they initiated a request for tech support to these guys, they expect to be called back. Mm -hmm. now, that's totally different from being cold called and saying you have a virus. If some, if you call and someone and say, you know, I'm interested in getting your help, and you get the call back saying, well, you know, you, you called us, they're much more likely to respond positively to that and mm -hmm. go through with the scam. Yeah, and so a uh, very tricky, tricky little scam, something to be paying attention to. So keeping in mind that when you say something on Twitter, you're basically broadcasting it to anybody that has a Twitter account. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, you. Do you trust all those people? I guess that's uh, You should not. <laughs> Probably not. I, I find it particularly interesting. It's still going on as of this taping. So if mm -hmm. you're interested, go look at what Lenny wrote on his blog. He's got some examples. And you'll probably find even more accounts that are doing this. The accounts seem to be used for general spam activities. Mm -hmm. they, they're sending like nonsense messages every so often, as well as direct messages to or, or messages targeted to other users to say, mm -hmm. hey, here's some other, some other offer. But mm -hmm. it seems only recently they've gone to this scam. Yeah. Um, do, do you know if it, there have been efforts to try to block those accounts when they're they're identified or complaints of them? I'm not directly aware of it, but I think now that the the article has been posted, I think Twitter will probably try and get on top of it. Yeah. I mean, this is one of this the challenges that social media organizations have is that defining what is an acceptable use policy and enforcement of that policy in a consistent way, because you know obviously they don't want to be creating harm for others, but they also try to, uh, to, try to support a, a freedom of speech policy. Right, right. So it's a, it's a bit of a tricky situation. In the end, it's really the end users that need to be responsible for how they interact and respond to uh, activity that are going on in social media. So. The interesting thing to be about this one is that you know, the practice of cold calling, they might get maybe, I don't know what their statistics are, but maybe one out of every 1,000, let's just mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. is someone who's actually going to fall for their little spiel that they give you over the phone. Mm -hmm. Whereas this tactic, all they got to do is have a bot send messages, and it like pre-screens, and they got this yeah. nice pool of naive users mm -hmm. who are already foolish enough to respond well, to the than, Twitter message. To get, and they're yeah. more than likely to fall for the next phase. Yeah, uh, and they're trying the, to deal with, they, they're obviously you know, frustrated and trying to deal with the problem already, as opposed to the other way around, right? Well, the funny thing about that is there are several, I was taking a look at the Twitter feed for, the, for these terms, and uh, there are definitely people out there who are not talking about being infected. Just the mention of the word virus, and you know, if it's cold and flu season, someone complaining about being physically sick, you'll get a message back. I know a guy who can totally help you with that. You know? I have the sniffles. So there's going to be a couple, couple funny misses in there somewhere. So until they start doing like natural language processing, there's probably going to be some amusing misses in there. Yeah, that's probably hmm. true. So interesting. Well, I can help you with your, uh, your virus. Why do I have to be over 21, by the way? <laughs>
and okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, last week we discussed the superfish thing, and uh, we talked about some of the potential issues that could come up as a result of that. And and John, I guess you were looking at this a little bit more closely. Yeah. So I missed the discussion last week because I was out, so I didn't really get the whole gist of what you guys covered, but. Uh, you know, the basis of the whole Superfish thing mm -hmm. is Lenovo had a whole bunch of laptops that they started shipping with the software that's on there called Superfish, which kind of acts as an HTTPS uh, proxy intercept in a way. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that it makes, you know, all sites, you know, they, mm -hmm. they basically sign a SSL certificate with their own root certificate mm -hmm. uh, on the fly and give it back to you. So wherever you're going, it's signed by them, and they can also, if they wanted to, intercept what you're actually the communications in between, which is not necessarily good either. Right. Um, and, and Matt, you described some of the flaws in the way they had actually done that. Right. It's true. Well, I was going to mention that. So they have one certificate, it's just one key pair, mm -hmm. which they had buried into the software, and it was very easily cracked. Mm -hmm. It was a simple password. So now that people have that, the malware authors apparently this past week have decided, okay, well, this particular certificate is good for code signing, so they could sign files, um, SSL server, email for secure email, all, basically, it's a full authenticate, you know, it's not a certificate that's just for cer certain purposes, like mm -hmm. most, most of them usually get assigned. This can do any of those functions. So they started signing their malware with the certificate, which is trusted on these laptops that have Superfish. It'd be installed. specifically those devices. It's not. Right. It's not going to be a widespread thing. I mean, other than that community, because the certificate had been installed on devices that have the Superfish. Right, installed and as a trusted root certificate. Whereas right. if you're one of our, you know, PCs or your PC that's not doesn't have Superfish on it, you're not going to have that as a trusted root certificate. So it should pop up and say, hey. I don't know this certificate and give you some mm -hmm. warning messages when you try to execute that file. So anyway, apparently people have kind of started leveraging this uh, tactic and uh, a lot of the antivirus vendors are already aware of this and trying to build in protections against people trying to uh, do this, but right. just something to be aware of. So I, I guess, how would I know? I guess that perhaps there's something that indicates that the, uh, the user has this kind of device that has the Superfish installed, I guess. Of all the computers that are out there, how would you find the ones that are? I think it's more of a shotgun approach. I think you'd try it on all the machines and, and you get the ones that right. happen to have it installed. Right. And Never. somebody might even just go ahead and click through and accept it anyway, right? They may still do that, yeah. <laughs> right. right. Okay. Uh, so don't click through, don't accept things <laughs> from uh, you know certificates that you don't recognize, I guess is sort of a I think part of the moral That's the lesson for, well. for users, but I think the lesson for developers and especially people who are dealing with cryptographic oh, yeah, certificates is understand what you're doing. Yeah. There is really not, there's not that many good reasons to create a certificate that can be used in all cases, which is exactly what we have here. Right. I mean, if you're using it for SSL, make sure it's set up for SSL and only that. If you're mm -hmm. doing it for code signing, only that. Have multiple certificates and don't allow this situation to occur. Yeah, I guess then that it, as a master of super generic statements, there are no shortcuts in security. You really kind of have to pay attention to the details. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, I think that's exactly what you're saying, right? <laughs> and keep your private keys strong. Don't have stupid yeah. passwords. Like Don't yeah. bury them inside your software and keep them away from everybody else. Uh, you know, yeah. Don't put them up on GitHub. Yeah. <laughs> right? Don't Things like that. Don't make it the name of your company. Right. Yeah, yeah the, uh, so again, those are details. Right. These are. <laughs> 
<laughs> paying attention to the details. That's really the path to, to good security if you're implementing security. Uh, or even, I guess, if you're trying to protect yourself, you know, paying attention to details. Where do the links really go to? Is mm -hmm. it something that you recognize? Do you really think Amazon is giving free gift cards? Okay, so uh, <laughs> let's go ahead on. So you had another uh, yeah, topic so Yes, this is kind of uh, very related, so it's a good segue here in that, you know, in the wake of the whole Superfish revelation, and Lenovo actually did come out and say, hey, here's a way to get rid of it. We acknowledge that this probably mm -hmm. wasn't a great idea. But people started looking at some of these other um, uh, HBS uh, interception. I forget what they actually call that. There's a library that a lot of them are using. It's like mm -hmm. an SSL proxy type of thing or something, toolkit. And there's another one called PrivDog. I don't think this is installed as widely on you know, like one particular platform, but they noticed that um, this one's, I guess, potentially worse. And I'm not quite sure because I haven't really looked at Superfish myself to see how it works, but they said with PrivDog, it intercepts every certificate mm -hmm. and signs it with their own rookie, just I, which I think Superfish did. But mm -hmm. the other interesting part about this is that it will also sign certificates for websites that are not even valid. So if you go to right. like somebody who has a self-signed certificate, you know, maybe some hacker well, out there or whatever, a rogue one, they're gonna basically make their own signed as whatever, badguy.com, mm -hmm. signed under the PrivDog certificate. Your browser trusts that. And, um, and now you're going there, none the wiser that this was a self-signed certificate right. for the real website you were trying to get to, because they intercepted your Yeah, I, th your I thought it was the same situation. It's almost the same situation. The same. This is, is actually worse. So in, in this case of Superfish, um, it would actually warn you if it was a self-signed certificate, there would be something that would pop up and say this is probably not yeah, right. Okay. If you were, if you specially crafted your self-signed certificate to put something in the alternates field, that was the same as the host that you were trying to, you know, pretend to be, mm -hmm. it would pass that over. It sounds okay. like with PrivDog, you don't even have to do that. It just sort of ignores any invalidation. Basically, you have no SSL authentication, really. Yeah. This is a common no error, by the way, and a lot of uh, a lot of systems, the tendency to just, you know, it's signed. It must be good, right? No. <laughs> no, and that's why I think that's fundamentally could the case. Could be stolen. So uh, it could be expired. You actually have to verify that it's signed correctly and then check each of the fields in the context to make sure that, like you said, it's being used for the correct purpose. It's not expired. It it's actually represents the organization. It hasn't been revoked. Those are important aspects of this whole thing. In fact, the fact that it's signed is really to convey that that information that's contained in there is not altered. And it's really the rules checking that's fundamentally the, the, the intent of the content in the certificate itself. So right, right. All good stuff, if it's done properly. Right. So, weren't we talking about details? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, let's go ahead back to you here, Matt. And I guess, um, I think we were even talking about some things related to uh, CDs that might install some software to do some things, but this is kind of turning that upside down a little bit, right? A little bit. So uh, Stephen Tompkinson at the NCC Group did some really interesting work with Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. Now, Blu-ray we all know as the, the format you play high-definition video on. It was the one that won over HD-DVD, etc. Mm -hmm. um, turns out that Blu-ray actually supports uh, a standard of Java called BDJ. And what BDJ is used for is for adding small applications 
or you know special in user interfaces to Blu-rays. So sometimes you'll pop in a disc, you'll see a special menu pop up, and you'll see maybe you'll be able to play a game on the disc. Maybe there's some sort of trivia. Kind of a variation of JavaScript, perhaps, or uh, no? JavaScript is completely separate from Java. Okay, okay, yeah, but it, it sounded like this is kind of creating some similar kind of functionality that is to create more dynamics on a website. It gives you much more flexibility in what, right. you're, what you're creating. It's not just menus where you can go from one button to the next. It's, it's being able to have that interaction. Right. right. And you know, a lot of people love having that on the disc, like to play a game related to their favorite movie. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it means that someone has to be writing code that runs on whatever you're playing your Blu-ray in. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a, a sandbox within the Blu-ray, the BDJ standard, which is supposed to prevent code in that space from interacting with your operating system or your device Just or things like, like Java that. Java would. Exactly. Java runs yeah. in a virtual machine, but it gets escaped all the time. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, well, and they've been fixing those bugs. Yeah, over they the fix year. it along the way, yeah, but yeah, eventually, right. here and there, people find ways to escape the VM. So. Right. Well, that's exactly where we're going with this. <laughs> um, so, uh, they found two bugs. Uh, one is in the Cyberlink Power DVD player, which if anybody's ever had like an OEM machine with a pre-installed DVD player, mm -hmm. it, chances are it might have been Powerlink. Turns out that Powerlink does... So, so this is a, a player in a computer? In Windows, yes. Right. I'm getting there. There's an even more okay. exciting one coming right, <laughs> right after that. Um, but it seems that they are... The, the system does have a check to see whether or not you know, code should be allowed to run, mm -hmm. and it checks against a list of threads. Turns out there's also a call available to you in, within BDJ on that machine in that that player to put yourself in that list. So you put yourself in the list, and then the check runs, and you're golden, and you can run code. You've escaped the sandbox. So basically, your Blu-ray player is executing on trip code that you did not expect on on your machine, not just within the sandbox. So that's obviously a problem. So potentially, mm -hmm. somebody could write something that would install malware just from you playing a uh, trojanized Blu-ray disk on your Powerlink, mm -hmm, whatever, yes. uh, not Powerlink, PowerDVD, yes. Cyberlink PowerDVD player inside your computer. Exactly. And it could boop, put some malware down in your it, machine. It's just a, sort of a comparison contrast here. If I have a CD that's got a Trojan on it, you know, if I, it, it, or just a regular DVD, not a Blu-ray format, how, what's fundamentally different here? There's, wouldn't the autoplay feature fundamentally provide the opportunity to do something very similar? It could. Um, I would expect that in that case you've got um, a standalone executable mm -hmm. that's being run and, and performing those behaviors, whereas here you've got Java code that's being interpreted by the JVM, that mm -hmm. BDJ. So it's, it's, it's past the autoplay thing, so it, yeah. you don't really have a choice in a sense. Right. right. If, you're, if you're playing this content, you're potentially open to these kind of attacks. Yeah, we tend to think of uh, uh, you know, playing a DVD as I'm just looking at some media, right. not really running code, and this is the thing where, well, there's a little bit of code in there, mm, yep. kind of, okay. Now, the second case is actually an attack on a physical Blu-ray player. Uh, I don't remember the model number, but it turns out that this, this Blu-ray player, like a lot of devices that have internet connectivity, mm -hmm. um, is actually running Linux. And it's got processes running inside of it, including one for inter-process communication, mm -hmm. and it's, there's a server-client sort of relationship, and the client is, has been set up to send certain commands, like plain old operating system commands, to this IPC client server, and it just takes it and says, great. It's listening on a network port. Mm. And for some reason, TCP dump is on this player. No kidding. So for those who don't know TCP dump, it's there to sniff network traffic. Okay, so it, it sniffs packets, and mm -hmm. they can be ca guess. perhaps captured. Or it's got to be from di for diagnostic purposes while they were building yeah, the thing, probably. Likely. But it's kind of you would think that they should 
take that off from the production mm -hmm. build. Yep. But. So basically, the attack is to sniff that traffic and then basically replay those bytes back to the, the, the listening server, and you can run those commands by yourself. Now, I don't know that they, they went and mapped out, you know, every single possible command, but if you've got that ability, heck, you've, you've basically got control of the box. All right. The researcher in this case came up with a Blu-ray disc that would actually perform both attacks. Mm. So you pop this into either one of those players, your Windows software one, or your, your physical player, and through you know, certain checks, it'll figure out what it's running on and exploit each. So do you know if any fixes are in the Yep, plan? NCC Group has contacted both vendors in this case and is working to get a patch out for both of these. Good. Uh, That's encouraging. Now, I, I've, uh, you said you didn't remember the specific model. You know, some of the DVD players have a, uh, you know, Blu-ray players have automatic software updates. Do you know if this fits into that category? I don't, but I would suspect that it does. Mm -hmm. Most of the, the, the larger names do support some sort of firmware update. So. Yeah, because it, you know th this really kind of fits into that category of internet of what we've you yeah, know put into quotes things. insecure things. But if they do have the soft uh, automatic software updates, that's a significant aspect of moving into the space. You know, we expect we have to live with the fact that all software systems have flaws, and this is a case where a flaw has been discovered. But the opportunity to fix that flaw is a real key aspect of being able to uh, call it a not insecure thing. <laughs> you did mention automatic, though. And yeah. with my experience, I've, I've had Blu-ray players that have asked me, you know, on boot, hey, I've got a new update. Can we take the time to do that? You know, I kind of wonder if, if most users are patient enough to say, you know, I just sat down, I've got my popcorn, I've got my mm. beverage of choice. I was just thinking popcorn is myself, you know, you don't want the, uh, you don't want the ice melting and the popcorn getting all <laughs> soggy and everything. <laughs> I do all the time. My wife, she doesn't mind at all. I said, these are the previews. Watch the software update. This is the best part. John's she favorite part is the software updates. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite part of the movie. Oh, is look, the... honey, 17%. <laughs> Yeah, you obviously aren't picking the movies in your house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, actually, a very good story. I think that's um, and because I think it does sort of, you know, take us into that dividing line between what I think is a very important aspect of systems going forward is that transition, you know, these uh, devices that aren't designed well for connecting to the Internet and being able to do updates. I think flaws are going to exist. That's just a, a fact of life. But being able to have the system update with relatively little interruption of the uh, of the use of the device, or or having to have somebody actually go out and initiate, you know, what firmware update do I need, and you know, pulling it in and loading on the machine and doing a reboot process, things like that. So this is uh, a, a, that aspect of this is a, a good sign here. You know, we've seen other cases where devices have been compromised, you know, the security surveillance cameras that have been significantly worse situations, whereas what we're talking about here is you have to have a Trojan's disk and uh, hopefully won't be buying those on the store shelves anytime soon. No. Well, <laughs> we've, we've heard of... Be wary of BitTorrent, right? Yeah. Getting well, your pirated careful, movies yeah, off of BitTorrent, where yeah. probably most of these things get downloaded. Well, that's uh, actually a good point. Good point, John. And uh, so folks that are trying to subvert the uh, the controls that are in place, it's kind of like the off-market app stores, right, mm -hmm. in a sense. 
Um, or those guys on the street in New York City who are selling you very, very cheap Blu-ray discs. If you happen to buy from okay. those markets, you might be getting in trouble. Also a good point. And Absolutely. if you want to go a little bit more crazy, you know, if you have supply chain problems and somebody in your, your disc factory in, in China yeah. slips a little extra something into your disc, mm -hmm. you, we may see an attack like this in the future. Now, mm -hmm. the diversity of the platforms may not make this a widespread thing or a very you know, cost-effective attack, but it's possible. No, good points. All good points. And so the uh, the threat factor has to be thought about and considered with the, the significance of it. The, the thing that came to me is I think there's still services where you can subscribe and it's basically a, a DVD exchange service in a oh, sense right. where you order it and then you send it back and who knows what how many checks are done on yeah. that to verify that it's actually that, that this that gets sent back. So who knows how, how far that might reach them ultimately as well. Hmm. That is an interesting idea. It's not an idea. <laughs> you didn't mean planned, did you? <laughs> no, no, no. I just thought about that. It's a consideration in yeah. protecting like yourself. Like Netflix, Redbox, you know, they're all vectors, but I hadn't really you, thought you about that. You'd have to that. do so much research on your target. You'd have to know that this guy happens to like obscure Russian films to make sure that your obscure Russian If you're fake trying to target a specific person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're just trying to, huh. uh, to uh, proliferate. All right, so let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And I, you know, quite frankly, I didn't see too many things that were really uh, significant for reporting purposes. So uh, we're just taking a look here, first of all, at the most uh, top 10 most probe ports. Sort of a typical list here, top of the list, port 23, followed by port 22 TCP. The next one actually moved up quite a bit, so we're going to take a little bit of a closer look at it. This is 1900 UDP. And we're looking at probing activity here, so that's most likely the request side of reflective denial service attack activity. So, we'll, like I said, we'll take a little closer look at that. Followed by 9064, which is a, a proxy port, so looking for uh, anonymizing proxies most likely. Port 135 TCP, it's been on the list for a long time, 445 TCP. It's encouraging to see that piece of the pie narrowing yeah. significantly as we go along here. Port 8880 TCP, which uh, often on the list, again, proxy port. 3389 remote desktop protocol. Port 53 UDP, most likely probing, looking for open proxies. And 80 TCP, which, uh, you know, obviously they'd be looking for websites. Now, one of the things I added on this particular pie chart that we haven't seen in the past is the in the other category, how many other ports are getting probed. So out of the 128,000 ports, and then there are some uh, protocols and uh, ICMP types, we're seeing another 1,566 ports that are being probed there. So relatively small percentage of the ports are being probed, but in this particular case represent maybe 45% or so of the total probes that we see on the network. So there's quite a bit of other stuff that's going on. As I said, taking a little closer look at scanned probes on port 1900 UDP, we're actually looking at two things here. One is um, on the top graph, looking at the number of probes that are taking place and actually looking over the last year. So uh, we can see the trend in activity as this port was, first of all, some scanning activity looking for availability of this port, that is devices that are offering this port on the internet. And then uh, subsequently the growth of DDoS attack activity, that is reflective denial service attack activity using this port, and that's really in the graph below where we're looking at the number of bits coming from port 1900 UDP, that is source port 1900 UDP. And uh, the scale below is in gigabits per second, and um, from the slice of the network that we're look looking at here, 
There was a period where it was up around, you know, in the tens of gigabits per second. It tapered off a little bit, I think, uh, in an effort to try to uh, close down some of the activity. But that uh, continues, to, that is the amount of probing activity continues to grow. That suggests to me more attacks, but that perhaps not larger attacks in a cumulative sense. Again, the, the number of uh, flows there related to an increase in the amount of attack activity that's taken place. Taking a look at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, again, not a whole lot. In fact, there hasn't been really very much movement on this one at all. The one thing that actually shows up here is uh, port 3159 UDP. But that's actually, I think, a bit, is that a BitTorrent port? I don't don't remember that one. Actually, I should have probably taken a little closer look at it. But I feel uh, like it's a proxy port, but give me a second. Okay, go ahead and take a look. Yeah, it's UDP, Uh, though. Yeah, I think you actually are right, Mm. Matt. But in any case, uh, at the top of the list here, port 23 TCP, we had taken a look at that last week. And uh, it's actually continuing to be uh, relatively consistent. We haven't seen any significant increases in activity for the last few weeks, it's actually tapering off a little bit in terms of the number of sources doing the probing. But as we looked at last week, there are some spikes in the number of probes on port 23. 3159, it's that Navego tarification one that we still don't understand. (laughs) Okay. All right, so if any any of our viewers have any uh, insight into port 3159 and uh, can help explain it, we'd be happy to hear from you. In any case, uh, followed by port 445 TCP, 2715, some peer-to-peer activity, 6881 also, I think that is the BitTorrent port. And then 1900 UDP, we've already talked about that in the context of um, reflective denial of service attack activity. And then followed by a couple of ICMP uh, sets of activity. So uh, that's the show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, for example, to help us understand a little bit better port 3159 and the activity that might be taking place there. You can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. You can find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech channel. That's att.com slash threattrack. It's also available on YouTube as well as on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. So thank you, Matt. Thank you, John. Good conversation today. I'm Brian Rexwode, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, Keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.